Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy here. Hello there, Owen. Hi, Kieran. There's no Ken Early, who is having some post World Cup Ken time this week. There's also no Premier League football just yet, and we've taken the gap on the calendar as a cue to spend some time running a series of interviews with interesting football people. And thanks very much, firstly, for all the positive reaction to the chat with Stephen McPhail last week. We really enjoyed having Stephen pop into the studio to talk about a fairly amazing career. Today we have a really, really special guest. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. So forgive us if we sound a little bit excitable here today. But if you listen regularly, you'll have heard me talk about The Football Man, one of the great sports books written in 1968 by Arthur Hopcraft, who subsequently went on to achieve fame writing a TV adaptation of the or the TV adaptation really of Tinker Tailor mm. Soldier Spy among other great works yeah in itself uh, recognised as one of the great TV series uh, of the last 40 years uh, created in this part of the world at least The Football Man is a study of the game in England at that point in time it's changing relationship there between supporters and teams between players and supporters players no longer really it's, it, it takes a lot of comparisons from the 30s and 40s and brings it up to the end of the 1960s when there's more money arriving into the game and it's written through a portrait a bunch of portraits really of some great names Stanley Matthews Stan Cullis these kind of names mm. George Best but one of my favourite parts of the book arrives it's actually before the book itself even begins it's the foreword which is written beautifully by a former journalistic colleague of Hopcraft's going back to the 1950s in Barnsley a man by the name of Michael Parkinson and it gives me a great pleasure to tell you that we have Michael Parkinson on today's programme to talk about Hopcraft we talked about that book and about Michael's own changing relationship with football over the years I'm not sure how many of these football shows my mum and my sister listen to Kieran but when I said <laughs> that I was speaking to Michael Parkinson today they went Michael Parkinson yeah Michael yeah, but it's just half thinking it's just some football name that they don't care about well, hang on <laughs> hang on Parky the, the Parky yeah 
So there's certainly a, hopefully a crossover appeal, uh, I would imagine. I think that there's a big element of that. I mean, I think uh, people of uh, our age maybe remember the second coming of the Parkinson shows. Uh, I think the, the the second coming came started in 1998, something like that. Mm. Um, and they were brilliant. And I remember actually sitting down and watching them uh, pretty much every Saturday and uh, recognising in Parkinson a man who was patently better at his job than anyone else I'd ever seen doing it. But really, I think how we now consume Parkinson and uh, his interviews and his TV shows is through YouTube. And um, it's one of the most, of all the YouTube black holes that you could fall down, Michael Parkinson YouTube black holes are just... Yeah, you start with Ali and then you end up just all over the place. It's amazing Man. stuff. Well, did, Ali is everyone's starting point, but I, I remember yeah. watching a Richard Harris interview that he did as well, which is just like a 45-minute Richard Harris interview, no one else on the show. Absolutely amazing. But the Ali interviews, I think, actually showcased what made what made him special in that he actually calls bullshit on Muhammad Ali in a way that you don't really see happening anymore. You know, when, when, it, when it comes... He's obviously in awe of Ali his beauty, his sporting prowess, everything, but at the same time, you know, actually challenges him. And I think that they're the, he's, you know, that, that's, that's the big thing about, about the interviews that you, that you watched that, that uh, Michael Parkinson did. You mentioned the, uh, the fact that there, were, uh, there was a second coming of the TV show. It was off the air for quite a number of years. I, I think I'm right in saying that Michael Parkinson then started the, the, the revival of it years after it had been previously been on air by saying something along the lines of, before I was rudely interrupted, yeah. and then into. <laughs> if I'm wrong on that, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, I do apologise. But um, something along those lines. It's hugely exciting, and it has been hugely exciting to be speaking today to Michael Parkinson on the program. I chatted to him a little bit earlier. Hope you enjoy it. I knew the place. Fluff, but he calls me Ravi. Didn't know them. He said to me, "What can you do that the boss hasn't done?" You and I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We're doing, we're doing lost four matches. Then, but that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Fluff, but he calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that may, that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. All right, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the programme Sir Michael Parkinson. Michael, thanks very much for talking to us, first of all. My pleasure. We wanted to chat about The Football Man, uh, one of the great, probably one of the greatest sports books of all time, written by an old colleague of yours, Arthur Hopcraft. Uh, when did you first come across, Arthur? I killed this author when I was a very young reporter in Barnsley, working for the Barnsley Chronicle. I was about, I suppose, 19, something like that. You'd be about the same age. And uh, he'd come, down from, come up from the south somewhere. I don't know. He, he, he was a, kind of an exotic flower in Barnsley. He was Arthur. He used to wear sort of fawn clothes and things and, and the objects of kerchief, which didn't go down well in this sort of whippet area of Barnsley at the time. Uh, uh, and, but he was a very fine writer, and we we had a, an instant friendship based on, I think, a mutual kind of attraction in the sense of you know both being sports writers or attempted to be, and so we had, from that point on, our 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 friendship developed, 
until uh, the day died. Would you mind just taking us back a little further? Because I'm very interested, Michael, in knowing what fired your own interest in reporting. Why did you want to be a journalist in the first place? Well, I, I don't really know. I mean, mixed to watching Humphrey Bogart films where the press <laughs> tag in his, in his trilby uh, and just constantly grabbing hold of the film with his shoulder saying, hold the front page. That was very exciting, I thought. Uh, and then there was also the fact that my father was captain of the local cricket team and the local journalist used to come round on his rally bicycle every Monday morning to collect the sports results. I thought, that's hell of a job. I'd love to do that one day. Uh, and I did. Uh, I, I inherited the bicycle and started off in local papers collecting football results and stuff like that and doing the sort of local minutiae of village life in about five or six pit villages serviced by my newspaper, which then was called the South Yorkshire Times. So it, it, in those days, you could actually... Today, anybody who wanted to be what I did, where I became a journalist, uh, would have to go through all kinds of hoops and, and, and at the end of it not even have a job. Uh, in my day, I could leave school at 16, as I did, and walk straight into an office and said, yeah, here I am, I'm an apprentice, tell me what to do. And that was a wonderful golden time for, for, for children to, who wanted to be a journalist. Am I correct in saying that you were in the rather privileged position of being able to report on some football matches that you actually played in? I actually nearly turned professional because of what I wrote about myself. <laughs> I would say, uh, Gold Hungry Parky strikes again and uh, Magic Mike on form again and that sort of thing. And at one point we had about six scouts from various clubs watching us and I did hear one man as he walked away say, well, he was crap. So then I thought, well, maybe, but uh, cricket was exactly the same. I'd, I'd write myself my own stories and things like that. So I became a kind of one-man uh, PR unit for myself, and, and it, it kind of worked because eventually I got to play for Barnsley with Geoffrey Boycott and Dickie Bird and, and Trad Trials for Yorkshire and, and played for Hampshire Club Ground when I was in the Army doing my national service. So the cricket thing was fine. All my football stuff was fantasy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the cricket, I know your father would have been would have instilled that love of cricket in you and presumably football from a young age also. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we went, in those days, of course, you have to, I find like I'm talking about prehistoric times. I mean, I used to travel travel to a football, a Barsi Barsi play. If I got the early bus, I got the same bus as our centre half. <laughs> he used to get on at Mont Breton with his boots around his head and his pit muck still on. You know, I mean, my dad worked with half the Barsi the team at Grimethorpe Colliery. You know, they're all on other jobs. They all kind of represented the place where you lived. I mean, if you came to play football for Barsi, at Barsi, against Barsi, what you knew for certain was you're meeting a team of 11 pitmen, 11 colliers, would most likely kick the crap out of you. Uh, and, and that was true of any area in Britain. They, they were distinguished by the occupation that they, was there at the time. They were uh, distinguished by the, the kind of job they did. I mean, Barnsley, you're playing against 11 miners. That was the fact of the matter. All of whom worked in local pits, and, and there were very few exceptions. So it was a kind of communal thing. You know, it, it was... Our, our love of the of the of the game was was due to the fact that it was local pride. They weren't bought in players, the odd Scots guy or something like that. But you know they were all of a kind, and, and that's what made it really sort of uh, special. I think. Yeah, it's very interesting because the football man, which Hopcraft wrote, it came out originally in 1968, and I think that's trying to capture maybe a change in uh, the relationship between football and and. The community, because exactly yeah, right. and, yeah. and George George was the symbol of that change. I mean, George was if you trace George's lineage back, he was the first 
star footballer, the sense of being the first glamour footballer. I mean, nobody wore their hair like George before George appeared on the scene. Uh, nobody looked like George. I mean, he looked like Elizabeth Taylor, for God's sake. Uh, he played fo football like a dream. I mean, George changed everything. The problem was, for George, was that being the pathfinder, there was nobody there to look after him. So that by the time people understood, Busby particularly, had understood what had happened to George, the kind of fifth beetle that he'd become, it was already too late, and that George was set on his ways, drinking himself to death, basically. It was a great tragedy from that point of view. But in the short time that he was a player, and I think he retired when he was 27, something like that, in that time, he transformed football as a game and transformed it from sport to show business, basically. And all the footballers today who earn these huge wages should look at George and understand that he was the man who changed it all for them. And yet, the most he ever earned from Manchester United Football Club was £200 a week. Yeah, it's uh, incredible, really. It <laughs> really is. The, the, and this is, I guess, part of the magic of the book. I mean, even the profile of George Best, which is probably the most famous part of the football man, he compares, Hopcraft compares the best of 1965 when he first really encountered him to the best of only two or three years later. And he compares George, the precocious kid, had become Georgie, the public figure. Now, that's very poignant even hearing that now. I guess it was a striking piece of writing at the time. It was, and I think the favourite line or the favourite description of, of the book, and I, it's been a while since I've read it, uh, and I'm now quoting Riff, I remember, there's a marvellous moment where he travels with George in the car from Manchester United's car park, and George signs autographs and puts a sweet in his mouth, uh, you know, uh, which is a kind of a, a sort of symbol of a childish thing. And that's what he was. He was a kid, for God's sake, you know, 17, 18, wherever he was who liked bowl of sweets, and, and, and on that sort of accessibility, so they might have been in a Jaguar, bought himself a Jag as a symbol of his newfound wealth, 200 quid a week. But on the other hand, he was still belonged to, to the audience, to the crowd. Now, footballers nowadays sweep out of stadia in, in, in cars with blackened windows, you know, and there's no approach to them at all. Those are remote as, as mounting gods. Uh, and, and yet George is accessible and made himself accessible, particularly to the, to the female population. Yeah. Well, and I think that's begun to be captured in the football man. Was, was football written about much in this intellectual manner in the late 1960s? Well, it was, it was written in, in the sense of, of being part of a cohesive, if you like, cohesive uh, pattern of, of, of life in a community. Uh, it had a different function in those days. It, as I said, it was, it, was, it was part of the community and the people who played w represented that community. You weren't likely to have many... Um, uh, old Etonians or Horovians playing for Barnsley or indeed people who been to school. No, I don't mean that, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was different. It was, yeah. it was, you know, they were, they were working class people, proper working class people. And they knew about hardship and they knew about strikes and they knew about all that. And they expected to see from, from their community team the same spirit and attitude that had got them through the bad years as well that sense of communal spirit and all those things. So it, it was, there, there were, I mean, there, there, there always have been, so the, the, the slightly left-leaning uh, commentators who've always written about that. Arthur was the first, well, wasn't the first, I mean, there were several at that time, but, but Arthur pinpointed that, that change about to, 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 to happen to the communities. Uh, and I think, like, like me, what comes through in the book is, is a kind of sense of loss, 
uh, not pure nostalgia, it's just a sense of, of deprivation of, of something that's important that left the community. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a line in it, and I'm interested to know whether what type of writer is able to write a book like this. He says, I've tried to salute football while remaining as watchful for its blemishes as affection allows. Yeah. So you mentioned nostalgia there, and I think even at the time, it seems like Hopcraft was wary of being too nostalgic about the 30s and, and the 40s and the 50s. He, he was trying to be quite real about how football was at, at yes, that point. If, you, if you'd lived through the change, then, then it's impossible not to make comparisons. That's the point. And we can bore for Britain. Uh, Arthur and I could about going on about this and often did. But it was important, and, and I think, think it's the old saying about you had to be there to understand what we were talking about, basically. Uh, and it was not to say that we, we didn't appreciate what happened to the modern game. Of course we did. I mean, you know, the changes were some of them were wonderful, the stadia, all that sort of thing, the, the glamour of it all, and the television coverage, the accessibility, all those things. But what, you, what is missing was, was essentially not the... It was the, it was the soul of it, basically. It changed, it, it changed its nature. What sort of a working relationship did you have, Michael, with uh, Arthur Hopcraft at that time? You said you were a young, a young writer, a young journalist. Was it all very friendly or was there a competitive element? Yeah, well, we, we used to be, be very, very competitive uh, in the sense that, you know, we'd go off to a football match and we'd, we'd try to, to outright each other. And, uh, and it was, uh, it, it got quite uh, sort of curious at times, the, the, the sort of... Uh, the uh, uh, competition between us, uh, and while we were maintaining a, a very close friendship, which is what we had. Arthur left uh, Barnsley. There was some story that uh, he'd been attracted to a, a girl who was the <laughs> daughter of a senior police officer, and uh, the police officer disapproved of us, of, 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 of his daughter's choice and boyfriend. Um, came round and said to Arthur, it might be as well if you left town. So I think he went up <laughs> to the northeast for a while. <laughs> and the next time I saw him, I, I was in a sense responsible for it. And I'm, I'm very proud. I was working at Granada Television as a producer, and I remembered Arthur. And uh, and I thought, you know, because he was such a fine writer, we should have him at Granada. So we persuaded him to come down. And of course, from that point on, a new life opened for Arthur because that was the time when he met George, when he became he started writing football for the Observer as well, and also the time when he started writing first of all some very fine plays, and then of course became the the John Le Carre go-to man for the TV adaptations, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy particularly. Yeah, that's interesting. So that was around that time. So you gave him uh, this role within Granada, and that's when his yeah, that's writing I introduced first. him to Granada, and that's that's when he started, he started as a researcher on, on the program I was producing, and then he, he moved across to to do to start writing. I think he wrote Coronation Street for a while. I think there's some very fine writers, Jack Rosenthal, were there at the same time writing. So that's how he started, and he was very happy doing that. He kind of found a. He found a new life uh, when in, in, in writing adaptations and or, or even straightforward plays. He was a very, very fine dramatist in a sense, which he discovered because of that move to Granada. Yeah, you made the point in the forward to the 2006 edition of The Football Man that the book in no way embraces all his talents as a writer, yet it's clearly an outstanding example of his gifts as a journalist. That's so right. I mean, it, it, a lot of people, like Arthur, you know, get... get, get uh, kind of tagged with the thing about being a sports, just a sports writer. Well, I mean, two things there. I mean, some of the best writing in the newspaper, in my view, has always been on the back pages. There's some very, think of Hugh McIlvenny now. I mean, you can't find in the the, uh, Sunday Times a better writer than McIlvenny, no matter what people are writing about. So there's always been that tradition. 
and Arthur was, was, was part of that. But it kind of defined him for a while, and then he got away from it and became, you know, this, this fine all-round writer. At the same time, he became very reclusive. Um, he always was. He always favoured his own companies, and he wasn't a gregarious man at all. He was a quiet man who kept to himself, had a few, an intimate, if you like, group of friends who who, who, who cared for him, uh, a lot of women who loved him, and, uh, of course, sexually, he was never quite sure what he was. He once said he tried both and wished all of them would go away. Uh, so he was a reclusive kind of man, uh, and and when he, when he died, uh, I spoke at his memorial service, but along with John Le Carre, who was notoriously shy of you know appearing in public, but made a wonderful speech about Arthur saying that he thought that uh, he was the best adapter of his work that he'd ever ever worked with. Yeah, wonderful tribute. I'm interested, Michael, in what you said there about sports writing, about the quality of sports writing, because it sometimes can. I guess, I, I don't know if you would agree, but um, there's an element, I think that the, the sports department has been known as the toy department in newspapers over yeah, the years. That's right, it used to be called that, the toy department, yeah, well that's by, from people who don't know A, writers and don't know the significance of sport. The distortion nowadays of, 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 of sport is that people talk of it in terms of war and famine and God knows what else, you know, and in fact, of course, it's nothing like that at all. I mean, the, the relevance of sport is that it's irrelevant, except to actually persuade us that there's a world beyond the dreadful world we live in. If you look at the newspapers now, look what's happening in the Middle East and all over, then you'd be actually likely to think that the entire world was was an appalling place to live in, and you might be right, except that there's an alternative when we go to sport to actually escape for a while from the real world and live in a fantasy world. That's what Arthur understood with best. I mean, Best's best great gift, was he, he, he translated this extraordinary uh, talent that he had into a kind of a, uh, a madcap sort of fantasy, which we all got involved in, which got nothing to do with the real world, nothing to do with war, famine, anything important like that. It was entertainment. And that's, that's the genius of sport, is to persuade us that, you know, that things as irrelevant to sport is only irrelevant because it actually takes our mind off what is important which is war and famine and death and all that sort of thing. It sounds like something you've never lost your passion for then, Michael. As I said, you were, well, you were banging in all those goals playing as a youth in Barnsley. <laughs> uh, and, and genuinely, you, you, as you said, you were you, close to a cricket, a professional cricket career. So it seems like a love that has stayed with you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You, you can't ignore it once you've been bitten by the bug. But the important thing is to assess it properly, is to put it in its proper, proper place. You know, it is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. It can also be a little bit ridiculous, as you said there. There's a, a story you mentioned in the foreword, which I referenced earlier on, um, about your writing in the Barnsley Chronicle at that stage. You were writing about a footballer called, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Roy Cooling for Barnsley. Roy Cooling, yeah, 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 the, the, the intellectual, yeah. Is, <laughs> what, what, what was the line? I do, yes, I use a line. That's when Arthur and I were trying to, to... I said, yes, that's right. I said of Roy Cooling that uh, he had the looks of a, of a young Scott Fitzgerald. And because because the, the Arthur and I were constantly trying to get in references, which would baffle the subs <laughs> on the Barnsley Chronicle, and uh, I put this in and waited for Arthur to call me. Say that's great, got Scott Fitzgerald in, and I looked at the paper and it said uh, he had the looks of a Scott of the Antarctic. 
So the Basilica decided that the poor people of Barnsley had no idea which general was, but it's called the Antarctic. They all have no idea. <laughs> he did nothing like Scott the Antarctic, dressed or undressed. So, uh, but yeah, so an author would try and get things in, you know, as, as Andre Gide once said, and all this sort of thing, you know. So we had a great fun from that point of view. We, 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 were, we were firm friends as much as any, as much as Arthur would allow a friendship in a sense. He, he was, as I said, a contained man and 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 happy in his, his own company. And particularly when he started writing full-time plays and you know, adaptations, uh, he became virtually... Uh, um, uh, they disappeared, basically. Yeah. And, uh, and I, the next day I heard of him, I would get uh, calls from various people from looking after him when he became ill. And, and then, then he died, and, and, and that was it. And it was, it was very sad and a great loss. But I think he leaves behind, in a book like The, um, the Football Man, he leaves behind a part of himself. To all of himself, he's much more rounded character than that. But it's enough to to, to actually indicate that you know, uh, football writing can have great literary potential, and it can be beautifully written and humorously written. And uh, and and he did it better than most. I think people might be quite stunned by the prescience of some of what he wrote. Also, he calls towards the end of the book. He he sets out some of the trends at the at that point in football and where they might lead. And he calls for the redesign of terraces because there are safety issues. He talks. He says there should be full-time referees. He also says there'll be a, a, a breakaway of a Premier League from the Football League. This is absolutely incredible that he could... Um, I mean, it seems like he's almost psychic at times. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if he could claim that again. But no, he, he, had, he had an instinct for it. That's what he had. He had a feel for it, for the real heart of it, you know, not the superficiality of it, but for the, what, what was really important. And, it's an, and, and from that point of view, it's an important book, and it, it will stand alone as, as long as people watch football. Are, are you? Um, how do you view football now, Michael, with the Premier League as it is and the machine of the Champions League? It's got nothing to do with me. And that's the problem. I, that's exactly going back to what I was saying earlier. I, I feel I watch it. I mean, I'm some, sometimes I admire it. I'm excited by what I see. There's some fabulous players. But it doesn't mean anything to me. And, and the gap between the Premier League now and the rest of football is, is as huge as it's ever been, or more than it's ever been. And, and it, 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 the, the Premier League swamps and, and overwhelms all other teams, all other considerations, to the point where it's very difficult if you support a team like Barnsley, like I do, to actually feel the same way about it because it's so unfair, the entire business now. You know, the Premier League clubs, the top four clubs, five clubs, let us say, totally dominating because of their financial clout in the market, owned by foreigners. You know, the majority of players are foreigners. You know, where are the Normantons, the Skinner Normantons of my youth? You know, those people used to be. The thing about, this is the worst thing about modern football. Arthur and I used to talk about this, and we would agree on it. If we, Arthur and I, were writing nowadays, we could not write the way we did about football. What we did. Just because Because of the way it's moved There's no humor in it, for one thing. You know, and, and there's there's nothing that's characterful that characterizes the Brits as such. You know, yeah. I don't care about Croatians and you know, <laughs> people from wherever they might be from. They've got nothing to do with me. I can admire their, their courage, their, their style, whatever, but I don't feel an affinity with them at all. And when you watch the England football team play, then you understand what I'm talking about. Would you say that's the same with uh, even television interviews? Is it difficult to? Get the the sports stars with the type of accessibility, maybe that you would have that you would have had for many years. 
Well, they're as remote as people from Planet Zog, you know, and so are the people who run football. I mean, Harry Redknapp had a, a, a quote the other day about he'd been criticised for signing Real Ferdinand. And he said he's only on 35 grand a week. That won't change his life. Well, I mean, the average wage of a person is 27,000 quid. Here's a guy with one leg, end of his career, getting 35 grand a week. And Harry thinks, well, that's not like my size chicken feed. And of course, he's right compared to 250,000 quid a week, absurd, sometimes tax paid. In, what have they got to do with me and, and my youth and my football and the core of me? Nothing. Is there anything know? that could have been done over the years, do you think, to stem that tide? Or was it just the inevitable... No, co- no it's, you, you, you can't cure greed. You can't cure venal managers and uh, players and, and agents. Uh, agents are maybe the most corrupting influence in the game. Uh, and it's a game that's lost control. Of, of, it doesn't have a moral structure at all. Look at Blatter. Look at what's happening at the top most level of football. Are you telling me that that's straight, that's representative of the kind of community and the kind of people you want to deal with? Oh, come on. Yeah. Is it, is it strictly limited to football, what you're talking about here? Because I saw your interview with Ian Thorpe a couple of weeks ago, which was fascinating, I thought. Is there still hope for some sports people that they can be interesting outside of well, the there's always There's always hope that the, 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 great, the great stars will transcend all of this, maybe. But but all they do is, is if you watch you now the either Messi or whatever, you're lifted up, lifted for for a moment or two, and you're transported to another world in a sense. Uh, but when you come back to Earth again, it's 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 a fairly sort of what's the word? It's, it's a fairly corrupt base from which they're operating, and one that's, that's really I'm really detached from. Now it may be just no man talking about that, but I mean, you know, as I said to you earlier, Arthur and I were brought up in a generation, a different generation altogether. And the important thing about that is, is that we we grow with a sense of humour about sport, with a sense of its community value, of all that those things, with a sense of accessibility. You know, travelling to to the same bus to the ground as the centre up, and all that sort of thing. And we, if we swapped that, if we'd been born in this, there'd be no humour in our writing, no no sense of fun in our writing, and that's the problem today. Is that's what's lacking? Okay. It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, you, you mustn't take it too seriously. You can satirise what's happening today, but you can't. You can't have. You can't report it and make it seem funny and part of the human condition. Well, Michael, it's been absolutely fascinating. I have to say, listening to your insight and all of that, and it's also great to hear you sound so healthy. It was around this time last year that <laughs> you announced that you had prostate cancer, but you've recovered well. Yeah, it's it's a it's a recovery uh, and it's a slow process. But uh, yes, I'm, I've got uh, hopefully got rid of that, that cancer, and uh, now it's a question of surviving the uh, the results of the of the treatment, the chemotherapy, and that's sort of not the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy in my case. Uh, but that's what you have to learn to adjust to. But at present, everything's going fine. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, listen, it's been um, absolutely superb having you on. I'm sure everyone's enjoyed listening to you. And thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, okay, okay. Thanks. Take care, Paul. I really hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Um, chatting to Michael, I was looking forward to that phrase. It's it's almost like playing football and having to play keepy uppy against Leo Messi. Hmm. You know, you're 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 asking some questions of this guy who is probably the best person there's ever been in broadcasting at asking questions. But uh, it was uh, the description of sport and sports writing that he gave there. I think it was the relevance of sport is that it's irrelevant, is what he said. Is it? Probably the best summation I've ever heard of yeah, the actually only, of it. Yeah. yeah, only a couple of weeks ago you referenced uh, Dunlough Cusack talking about 
uh, talking at someone's funeral and someone said it puts it all in perspective really puts hurling in perspective really doesn't it but actually what Parkinson was saying there was that it we en- we enjoy it and we love it because it's escape it's total mm. it's escape and escape it it's it's important for that reason it's important because it takes us out of ourselves takes us out of the the humdrum uh, existence sometimes and it's you know like and that's that I think that's our feeling on it because you have to see it in you have to see it in perspective but that doesn't mean that you talk down to it or that you yeah. lessen its impact on your life you actually just know what it is. Or if you're Michael Parkinson, you're writing about your own goal-scoring exploits as a young player <laughs> in Barnsley's promising parky on goal trail again and all these kind of things, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And I do note that uh, I mentioned the Ian Thorpe interview, which is well worth watching there. This is Ian Thorpe um, speaking for the first time about the fact that he's gay and, and choosing Michael Parkinson as the man that he wanted to speak to about that, mm. which I found quite striking. And Parkinson had been around for so long and yet he's the go-to guy. Now, he's very popular in Australia, has had uh, TV shows over there for a long number of years, but clearly you have to be trusted by an athlete and a, a person in general speaking about something like that. And I guess when you've got a body of work that goes back so long and is so impressive, mm. somebody like Ian Thorpe maybe doesn't even think twice. It's, it's, of course, of course, it's Parkinson going to speak to about this. He's the guy who... Yeah, it just shows that he's with. still relevant, you know, and that's a long time after he started broadcasting. So we're big fans of Michael Parkinson. Big fans of Michael Parkinson. And that's it from today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. If you want to check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcast, you can hear some of the other great shows out there. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains if you want to pop us an email. The address is secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. We have another program out there for you today in which we look back at the hurling from the weekend and plenty more besides on that one. So do have a listen whenever you get a chance. Take care and thanks for listening today. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.